gospel lesson for today, the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. There is something that you have probably noticed about me. I know this about myself. I do not sit still very well at all. If I'm in a situation where I need to actually be sitting down for a long period of time, I'm usually really fidgety. That's just kind of a part of my nature. But I find more often than not, I like to be up moving around. Now, you've probably seen this before. I do try and kind of limit it here in the video because I know you can only see me in certain places. But I do move around a lot. When I'm leading worship live and I've got a little more room to move around, I tend to do so quite a bit. And another spot where I've really noticed this is when I'm teaching, and specifically teaching confirmation. Now, this has really come to my attention over the course of the last couple of years when we've had to transition into utilizing online means of communication. And so one of the things that I've begun to do is actually record myself teaching so that I can use that video and send it to individual students who are unable to be with us in person in that particular and as I've watched these videos, as I've reviewed them to make sure everything looks like it's supposed to, I've seen just how much do I move around. And there's one aspect of this that I really do a lot. In fact, my two kids, who have both been through confirmation classes with me, call this timelining, and I've actually heard it from some other students before as well. Now, most of the time when I'm moving around, it's very subconscious. I'm not really even thinking about it. But this particular motion that I do tends to indicate the idea of progression. And when I'm doing a timeline, it's the progression of time. And I say this leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to this. I'm going on down the line. But it's this idea of progression. This leads to this, which leads to this. And I can't help but think that the idea of progression has been an undertone of what we have seen over the last couple of months through our ongoing scripture lessons. Now, this period of Mark's gospel, starting in about chapter 8 and running through chapter 10, where we have been, where our scripture lessons have been for the last couple of months, is itself a time of progression, a time of transition from one thing to the next thing. 
Jesus' early ministry begins as he's moving around the Holy Land and he's teaching and he's performing miracles and he's spending time in different places. But that period has come to a close and now they're on their way towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the arrival, that's about to happen. It's actually right around the corner at the beginning of chapter 11, so we are almost there. But this time of transition as Jesus is moving towards a specific location, towards Jerusalem, he's been having a lot of different interactions with people, a lot of different teachings, a lot of different opposition, all sorts of stuff going on. But throughout the course of it, Jesus continues to tell us what he's moving towards. More than once, in fact, three times, once in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, and once in chapter 10, Jesus gives what we call the passion prediction, where he tells his audience, including the disciples, in Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be tortured, I will be killed, but I will rise again. That's been the continuous nature as Jesus lets him, them know this is where things are headed. Now, what's interesting about all of this is we have seen a progression in reaction, not only from the disciples, but from different people. The opponents of Jesus, the people who are learning from him, the people who have questions, the people who have comments, all this different thing these different things, they all seem to be progressing in terms of their understanding. Now, when it starts, it seems like everything that Jesus is hearing about is about rules. What's, is this allowed? Is it not allowed? Is this the right procedure? Is it not the right procedure? Is this lawful? Is it not lawful? Is this good or is it not? Over and over and over again, Jesus kind of has that situation come up to him. Now, sometimes people are testing him. Sometimes I think it's a legitimate question. It's hard to say, but we've seen it in different topics, topics which have included marriage and divorce, topics which have included ritual hand washing, topics that have included even healing on the Sabbath, among other things. We've had that. And it always seems to be about what do we have to do what do we have to achieve? And Jesus' responses are about, it's not about achieving anything. And we have that same idea that's present in what we just had last week as things are beginning to progress because Jesus continues to say, it's not about achievement. If it's about achievement, anyone could do it, but no, we can't. Brokenness is a human condition. It cannot be achieved. The kingdom of heaven, which is what he's always talking about, must be received. And then he gives examples about how you want to receive the kingdom of heaven, become like a child. You want to welcome me, welcome this child because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It continues to be this idea of humility and humbleness to receive it. Now, last week we saw a progression. If you happen to catch last week, we heard about the guy who comes up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he seems to be getting it. He knows he needs to receive it, but he's still stuck in this mentality of, I have to do something in order to be able to receive it, to put myself in a position of being able to receive it. Now, Jesus points things out again, and he says, it's not about what you do, because for you, one thing is lacking, go and do this. There's always something that will trip us up, because it's not about achievement. And don't forget, through all this, we've had the disciples. And we've had their reactions going on too. And I had to laugh at Peter last week because he had just heard this encounter that Jesus had with this other guy. And Peter pretty much says, well, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get out of it? With that, we're seeing this progression into what I think we're seeing today from James and John. We have followed you. We have done what we're supposed to do. We are with you, Lord. Now, what do we get out of it? That seems to be the tension that Jesus experienced 
listening to Peter last week and now in this encounter with James and John. They come up to him. And maybe who can blame them? They've been following Jesus around. They're included in the big three along with Peter. They've been privy to some of the more specialized type moments that, that, that Jesus has been a part of. They've got to experience it more directly. Maybe they were being opportunistic. Maybe they were just the first ones to think about it. We don't exactly know, but they come up to Jesus and they say, Lord, we want you to give us whatever we ask of you. And he's like, well, what do you want? And they say, grant us when you come into your glory that one of us can be at your left hand and one at your right hand. Give us the places of power. That's what we want to get out of this. Now, Jesus responds back to him in kind of a strange way. And he says, well, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, which is a metaphor for his suffering? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, which is a metaphor for his death? And they're like, yes, we can do that. We can certainly do that. Now, what's interesting is first Jesus gives them this response back of, well, yes, you actually are going to experience those things, which is strange because their fates are very, very, very different. James, tradition tells us, is actually martyred. He's killed, but he's beheaded. And John, tradition tells us, is the only one who wasn't martyred. So what is going on here? What is Jesus talking about? And I don't exactly know, but he goes on. He says, yes, you are going to experience, maybe he's saying you're going to experience hardship. You will experience that. But he says, the places of honor to be at my right and to be at my left is not for me to grant. It is for those for whom it is prepared. Now think of the request that they actually made. We want you to let us be at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your glory. Here's the thing, folks. The only time we hear about Jesus having someone at his right and at his left is when he is hanging on the cross. In his crucifixion, in his death on the cross, the cursed death on the cross, he's got a criminal on his left hand and a criminal on his right hand. And it's on the cross that the glory of God, the glory of Christ is revealed. When we think about all of this, this question that Peter had and now this request the disciples have all of this stuff even the strange response that Jesus has I think it reveals something about human nature we all tend to think transactionally don't we if I do this what do I get out of it and that seems to be lying under these questions that the disciples have had we are following you we are with you Jesus now what do we get out of it that's a question that I've encountered and perhaps you have too. In times when we're having conversations with one another, we ask these questions. And I think at times people from outside the church or from outside the faith have asked them. I know I've experienced these questions before. What do you get out of it? And especially these questions tend to come up around the moments of hardship, the moments of incredible pain or suffering, and perhaps none more often than around the moment of death when there's a death of a loved one and we see someone who's experiencing that or we're experiencing it ourselves. And folks, I can't speak for you, but I have been tangentially connected to a fair amount of death lately that's been touching the lives of people around me in my immediate orbit. It's been a strange situation to be able to try and offer comfort and care to people that I care about as they're experiencing death of loved ones. One is a friend of mine, 
a fellow pastor who recently lost her husband in an accident. And another one, two other friends of mine, also pastors, who were classmates at a different seminary that I went to who just lost another classmate of theirs in the last couple of weeks. And finally, right now, as I'm recording this, another friend and pastor colleague of mine is at the bedside of her sibling who may or may not survive. Death is touching a lot of people. Additionally, we are coming right up on what is a hard day in Underwood. In just a few days from now, we will experience the anniversary of not one, but two very tragic deaths of high schoolers that happened on the same day a couple of years back hard, hard time, hard moments, hard things. And in every single one of these situations, not only those, but also every single time I've encountered the subject of death, I always have the same thought. Sometimes I share it out loud and sometimes I don't, but death sucks and it isn't fair. Even in times when perhaps it may be the best thing for someone at the end of a long, fruitful life and it is their time, there is still something that feels somehow wrong about it. And in those moments, all we can do is cling to the truth of the gospel. Now, think back. The glory of Christ, that's what James and John brought up. And it's in the death of Jesus on the cross that his glory is revealed. But what is all this pointing to? I believe what it's pointing to, what we are reminded of, all of this, what we get itself is a progression just like we were seeing before. The first thing that we remember is that we are given an identity. The identity of Christ, first of all. One that was revealed by God in Jesus' baptism right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. This is my beloved child. One that will be repeated later at the transfiguration. This is my beloved child. Listen to him. Jesus is the son of God, the beloved one, the one who is loved. Now, whatever he was accomplishing when his glory was revealed on that cross, I believe Jesus was somehow making it possible for us to receive that same identity. That somehow through the power of God, through the mercy of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever we want to call it, we too receive that same identity, beloved child. Now that identity includes a claim. The claim of God upon us as child. You are my child. You are one in which I take delight. Now that identity, which is also a claim, includes And that promise is that whatever it was that Jesus was accomplishing through his life and his death and his resurrection, it is somehow breaking down the barriers that exist in the relationship between us and God, making it possible for God to claim us as children in the first place. But that promise also says that with all the junk, all the brokenness, all the difficulties that we will experience up to and including death, that claim that identity overcomes it. It's a hope that we find, even in the midst of the hardest moments, that we are never left alone in it, even in the times when it might feel like it. That identity, beloved child of God, means that the one who made all of this also made you and has claimed you out of God's 
delight. Your existence begins from a place of God's favor and the identity beloved child reveals it. It also gives us the hope to know that through all the hardships that we experience, all the difficulties that we face, that's not the last word, not even death. The claim of God upon the individual, the claim of God upon you as beloved child is one that means when your story is seemingly over, that's not the last word. Death doesn't get it. God does. What we receive through all this is a hope that's found in that promise which stems from our identity as one who is claimed by God. And we are called and empowered through the Holy Spirit to share that hope with the world and with one another. The Holy Spirit gathers us into the community of Christ, the body of Christ, where we are called to support one another. When we see another who's experiencing those hardships, we are called to support them and to be that glimmer of hope, that reflection of God's light shining in the darkness, knowing in the next moment we too might need to receive it back again. That is what we have been called to do for one another, but also for the world that we are a part of. We too might ask the same questions that the disciples were asking. Why Jesus? What do we get out of this? What's in it for us? Well, folks, what's in it for you is already done for you. It is the claim of God upon you as beloved child, a claim which nothing will ever 